You're listening to the Dangerous Prayer Sermon Series at Sojourn Church Midtown. In this series, we see how God invites us to grow in Christlikeness and step into His mission as we learn to pray, search us, break us, unite us, and send us. Peace be with you. Today's scripture reading is Psalm 139, 1 through 6, and 19 through 24. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in your bulletin or on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty. I am unable to reach it. God, if only you would kill the wicked. You bloodthirsty men, stay away from me, who invoke you deceitfully. Your enemies swear by you falsely. Lord, don't I hate those who hate you and detest those who rebel against you? I hate them with extreme hatred. I consider them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Peace be with you. My name is Timothy Jones, and I have the privilege of serving as one of your pastors here. We are at the end, or nearing the end, of 2019. And for some of you, this may have been the best year ever. For others of you, this may have been the year from hell, and you cannot wait until this year is in the book so you can just move on. And most of you are probably somewhere in between that, and yet either way, here we are together in our carbohydrate comas from the holidays and all of those things. We're here with all the stories that we have from this year, not the same people we were a year ago, and we're looking toward another year. And I don't know what 2020 will bring for our congregation, but I can tell you this, and I really mean it. There is no people that I'd rather be among than the people of this particular church. I really mean that. And furthermore, I would say there's no one I would rather have God having called to lead us than Pastor Jamal. I think this is going to be a beautiful year for us as a church as we move into 2020. And one of the things as we move into 2020 that we're thinking about is dangerous prayers, dangerous prayers to prepare us for this upcoming year. You see, most prayers that we pray are safe prayers. That's most of the prayers that we pray. When God answers them, safe prayers make our lives more comfortable and less challenging. A lot of prayers we pray are safe prayers. We pray, Lord, will you bless this food? Now, most of the time, that blessing of this food, you're not really afraid of the food or anything like that. You're just acknowledging God, bless this meal that we're about to eat. You may have prayed at some point this morning already, God, help me to find a parking place so that I am in there on time. That's a safe prayer. Even some big prayers that we pray are safe 
prayers, if we ask for somebody to be healed, that's a prayer that if that happens, if God does what we ask, it makes our lives more comfortable and less challenging. And I want us to understand safe prayers aren't bad. Most of the prayers we pray in our life are going to be safe prayers, and that's okay. Safe prayers are not bad, but safe prayers aren't enough to grow us into who God wants us to be. Now, if you look at the front of your bulletin, you'll see a picture. And on the front of the bulletin, there's a picture of a skull connected to these prayers. And we didn't just put that there because it looks cool, though it does. It really does. We put that there because dangerous prayers are prayers that force us to die to ourselves. Dangerous prayers force us to die to ourselves. These are prayers that as we pray them, God challenges us, God changes us in ways sometimes that are painful. These are gritty prayers. And my prayer is that as we pray these prayers, God will transform this church into a powerful and prophetic community filled with gritty disciple makers like this city has never yet seen. And I want to give you a challenge over the next four weeks of this series. And it's that I want you to choose one of the prayers that are prayed that we talk about over the next four weeks. I want you to choose one of those prayers and say, that's mine for this year. That's my prayer. I want you to be on the lookout for the next four weeks for the one that you say, that one is mine. That's the prayer, God, that I am going to pray this year. I'm going to focus on. This is going to be my theme prayer for this year. And this week's prayer is search me. Search me from the closing verses of Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive or idolatrous way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. In this prayer, what is being prayed is God examine me and reveal the truth about me. God, examine me. Search me. Know the truth about me. This prayer is dangerous because sometimes the truth can hurt worse than you thought it would. You ever had that in your life? A time when the truth hurt worse than you thought it would? You can think of one way, one time when that happened. One of our children who will remain unnamed when she was about seven or eight years old, came to me and asked this question. Is Santa Claus real? And I thought for a moment, and I said, well, he was real. And what I went on to say after that is to tell her that there had been somebody named Santa Claus, whose name was St. Nicholas. And this particular person named St. Nicholas, this is an individual who lived long ago. He was a test, he testified truthfully to the truth about Jesus. He was actually tortured at one point in, in persecutions by the Roman Empire. And then after that, he was released and he told people about Jesus and eventually he died. And after the end of this, I felt like I, I'm like dad of the year award. I mean, this is that quality because it, what I've done is I've worked in truth and history and theology, all in that. And she seemed very satisfied with the answer I gave. And then three days later, I received a call from a school administrator that I knew. 
And what had happened was, is my daughter had told all of the class that Santa Claus was dead. He died over a thousand years ago. He had died and he had been tortured at one point by a cruel king. He had been persecuted and he was dead and he had been dead for hundreds of years and her dad knew all about these things and that's what he told her. Man, first graders get worked out up about some things. They really do. And so there was the truth. I told the truth and the truth was conveyed, but the truth hurt worse than anyone thought that it would at that point. Now, it's not just when it comes to Santa Claus that that's true. It's true in your life. The truth will set you free, but sometimes it hurts you as it frees you. The truth sets you free, but it will hurt you at times. And that's why search me, God. Tell me the truth about myself. That's why that is a dangerous prayer. And we can't see the full danger of these words at the end of the prayer until we look carefully at the beginning of this particular psalm. Because as the psalm begins, what we actually have is not so much danger as strangeness. Strangeness. And here's why I say it's strange. It starts out with the words, Lord, you have searched me and known me. Now, what's strange about that is at the end of the psalm, David asked God to search him and know him. And yet at the beginning of the psalm, he says, God, you have already searched me and known me. Why is David praying for God to do what God has already done? And often we have this idea that we are praying to try to change what God's going to do or to get God to do something he hadn't already planned or purposed to do. And we wonder why on earth would somebody pray for something that has already been done? Well, I want you to understand something. You pray all the time for things that God has already done, decreed, or determined. You pray all the time. Your prayers are all things that God has in some sense decided or decreed or already done. You see, you don't pray to help God make his plans. Do you ever realize that? You don't pray to help God make his plans. If you think the purpose of your prayers is to change God's plan, well, good luck. Because you see, God doesn't need to change his plans because God's plan is already perfect. And you don't want him to change a perfect plan. The purpose of prayer is not to change God. It's to change you. That's what the purpose of prayer is. And so we pray all the time for things that God has already done or determined or decreed. And our prayers don't change God's plans. But rather in a way that we cannot understand, our prayers are part of God's plan. Isn't that beautiful? When you pray, you're not trying to change God. You're rather doing something that is actually part of a perfect plan of God. And so the foundations for this prayer then begin in verse 2 after he has said, you searched me and you have known me. And in beginning in verse 2 is some of the most sublime poetry in all of Scripture. Just listen to these words and let them wash over you. God, you know when I sit down. You know when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You watch my travels and my rest. You're aware of all my ways. Before a word is yet on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. This is wondrous knowledge. It's beyond me. It is lofty. I can't even reach it. Where can I go 
to escape your spirit? Where can I run from your presence if I go up to heaven? You're already there. If I make my bed in Sheol at the place of the dead, you are there. If I go to the eastern horizon or then I settle at the western limits, even there your hand leads me. Your right hand has a hold on me. If I say surely darkness will hide me and light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Do you hear the beauty of that? What David recognizes is he calls out to God and he says, God, no matter what, you know all about me. No matter where I go, you know all about me. What David realizes is that one of the most significant truths about us is that we don't know the truth about us. Do you realize that? One of the most significant truths about you is you don't know the truth about you. We don't know. God alone knows the whole and complete truth about us. This is in part because we are masters of self-deception. Nobody has ever lied to you like you lie to you. We are masters of self-deception. In a recent survey of high school seniors, 70% of them identified themselves as above average. Now, you may not know a lot about math, but averages cannot have 70% people that are above them. Here's the other one. Only 2% said they were below average. We are masters of self-deception. It's not only in self-assessments. It's in our lives in Christ. You and I both know we can rationalize our sin and pretend we are righteous. We can publicize our successes and convince ourselves we're humble. We can share only the parts of our brokenness that cause people to praise us and to give us attention while leaving the real awful twistedness in a place unseen. We are so good at self-deception. But it's not just that we deceive ourselves. We're also just complicated. Y'all are complicated. So am I. We are all these bundles of brains and bodies and hormones and memories and neurons and pleasure and pain. And you don't even know half the time why you do what you do. You don't even know. I don't either. We don't know why we do what we do, and so we end up at times with those questions haunting us. Why can't I escape this anxiety? Why do I keep blowing up at my roommates? Why do I talk to my kids that way? Why can't I be honest with my spouse? Why do I keep ending up on these websites? I know I shouldn't be spending this much, but I can't seem to stop. Why, why, why? And we don't know sometimes, because we're complicated. And God alone knows the truth about us. No one else knows the truth about you. The real truth about you is known only by God, and it's because his presence, his power, and his knowledge are unlimited. That's what David says here. He says, I go as high as I can, and you're still there. I go as low as I can, you're still there. I go as far east as I can go, and you're still there. I go as far west as I can, and you're still there. God, you are everywhere. I cannot escape you. You know me comprehensively. And this is something that is radical in his culture. Because if you were to look at the ancient Near Eastern religions, there are gods who are powerful. There are gods who have great knowledge, but there is no other God who is everywhere. 
that's unparalleled in any other religion of a God who is in all places and everywhere. And David knew that as a result of that, what God knew about David was more right and more real than anything David might think or feel. That's what God knows about him. And he says in verse 2, you know my thoughts from afar. You just know it all. We are broken and we are complicated and we don't know the full truth about ourselves. But that's not even only in bad ways. It's in beautiful ways. We don't know the full truth about ourselves. We see that beginning at verse 13. David still addressing God says, it was you who created my inmost parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you. Because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous. I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret. When I was formed in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw me when I was still formless. All my days were written in your book and planned, planned before a single one of them began. David describes here the conception of a child, of God knitting and weaving this infant in the womb. And it is your reminder that from the time the sperm and the egg came together and you were conceived, you were a human being, a full human being. And you, you had dignity and beauty and honor and God had a plan for you, a purpose. Just bask in that for a moment. That from that moment, God already had a plan and a purpose for me, for his glory. And what that means is your value does not depend on anything you do and it never has. Your value doesn't depend on how you perform for others. The things you accomplish that other people praise you for, it depends solely on the fact that God himself has declared you have value. Regardless of how you're treated or what has happened to you in your life, there is a wonder about you that nothing can ever change. I love how this one reformer in the 16th century put it. Nicholas Selnicker was his name. And he said, God himself created you in his image. He formed and preserved you in your mother's womb. He nurtured you and in time brought you to light. And God himself became your midwife and your nursemaid. Since otherwise, you would have perished. That's beautiful. That's how God views you and sees you. And what that means practically is your life is more broken than you will ever know. And yet it is more beautiful than you've ever dreamed. We're more broken than we could ever know. But we are more beautiful than we could ever dream. And when we pray, search me, we are saying, God, reveal the truth to me about me. But all the beauty and all the brokenness, let me see me the way I really am. And God alone can do this because God alone knows the truth about you. And he knows every detail of your life. Now, in some ways, that's not necessarily comforting. 
God knows every detail of your life and not just what you do, what you think, what you feel. God knows all of that. We get concerned when Alexa and Siri know what we say, everything we say. If you ever had that happen, you're having a conversation. I'm not a conspiracy theorist person, but you have a conversation and then an ad pops up that is what you've been talking about. They're listening to us, folks. <laughs> now let's see, multiply that out and then multiply that out to God and he knows and he's all powerful and all holy. This is like Santa Claus is coming to town. He knows you've been sleeping, he knows if you're awake, knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sakes and he's all powerful too. This is kind of scary if you think about it. That's why verses 17 and 18 are so important. Hear these words. These are the key words in the entire psalm. God, how precious your thoughts are to me. How vast their sum is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. I wake up. I come to the end of it. And I am still with you. David says, how weighty, how heavy, how precious are your thoughts to me. And when I reach the end, I awaken in the morning, I'm still with you. Do you see that what God knows about David does not drive David to despair, it drives him to worship. Isn't that beautiful? How can David not be driven to despair by the fact that all the wickedness in his heart is known to God? All of his motivations, all that he has done, and it's simply because of this. Because David knows that God has declared him righteous. Now David doesn't yet know how, but he knows that God has. We see that in texts like Psalm 51, where David cries out in Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness. God know, David knows that God has declared him righteous and has loving kindness and mercy toward him. David, though, doesn't yet know how. You and I know how. Because a distant descendant of David named Jesus, because he was crucified and took the punishment for all of the evil thoughts, all of the evil acts, all of the evil motivations that we don't even know for every person who would trust in Jesus. And David trusted in Jesus looking forward to someone yet to come. And you and I look to Jesus backwards, looking back to what Jesus has already done. And we know that he has triumphed over this because God has raised him from the dead. But David had a hint of it. He had enough of a hint of it to know that God had declared him righteous and was a merciful God toward him. And in Christ, God saw David as righteous, just as he does you if you have trusted in Jesus. And that's why David can say at the second part of verse 18, when I wake up, I am still with you. Now pause and think about this for a moment, what he's saying. He's saying, God, even with all you know about me, I wake up and you haven't left. Even with all you know. If we're honest, in our lives, there are people, maybe many people in our lives that in the back of our mind, we have this narrative going on. And we may be right. If you only knew all I'd done, 
you wouldn't be there for me. If you knew only what knew what had happened to me, you wouldn't look at me the same way. If you know what goes on in my mind and in my heart, you would never be here for me in the morning. You'd never be here for me. But to hear what he says to God, you know it all and you're still there when I wake up in the morning. You haven't left me in the night. God, you know it and you are still there because of Christ. And hear this carefully. If you are in Christ, what God knows about you may cause him to call you back, but it will never cause him to call it quits. That's the truth about your relationship with God. That if you are in Christ, what he knows may cause him to call you back, but it will never cause him to call it quits. He will still be there in the morning. Now when we get to verse 19, this whole section seems out of place at first. In fact, one of the commentaries I read on verses 19 through 22 said this would be the perfect psalm if we could only cut this part out. But let's hear it because this too is part of God's word and part of the words that are in this psalm that God himself has inspired to bear witness to the truth. Verse 19, God, if only you would kill the wicked, you bloodthirsty men, stay away from me who invoke you deceitfully, your enemies swear by you falsely. Lord, don't I hate those who hate you and detest those who rebel against you? I hate them with extreme hatred. I consider them my enemies. Well, that escalated quickly in this psalm. First off, we're talking about God's grace to me and suddenly we are gonna get these people and my thought when I read this text this first time to, to be able to study for this and was thinking about it, I thought, can I do this? Because if I can do this, let's start a list right now, God, because I have a list of people that I would like to turn this toward. So the question is, can we do this? And the answer is yes and no. Yes, on the one hand. God created us with a desire for righteousness and equity and justice. And part of what that longing produces is a hatred for unrighteousness and inequity and injustice and the desire for the destruction of sin and everything it's caused. We want evil to be destroyed. You do. You want evil to be destroyed. You want it to be obliterated. I've got perfect proof of this. And the proof of this is Star Wars. Anybody seen Star Wars Episode Nine yet? Okay, a handful, and no spoilers are coming, okay? This is a nerd alert, but no spoilers coming, okay? For four decades of Star Wars, they have been talking about finding balance in the force, like a balance between dark and light. But, and this is no big surprise, when you get to the end of Star Wars Episode Nine: Rise of Skywalker, there's not a balance between good and evil. There's victory of good over evil. People would have hated it, but people hated it anyway. But people would have hated it more if they would have just ended it with some sort of an, an impasse, a balance between good and evil. Why? Because our heart desperately wants to see evil destroyed. We can't live without that. And the reason you long for that and you hate and you want evil destroyed, the reason for that is because even though you weren't in the Garden of Eden, your heart knows that there was a time when there was no sin in this world. 
There was a time when there was no injustice. There was a time when things were perfect and beautiful and good. And you want that back. Your heart wants that back. You want evil to be destroyed. You want it. People may disagree about what is evil, but everyone wants to see evil destroyed. And so we have some hatred in us because evil is an unnatural intruder in God's good world. And you have hate. But I said there's, and no, as well. You see, because what Jesus did on the cross, it didn't just change how we love, it changes how we hate. It changes how we hate. Because all of God's righteous wrath was poured out on Jesus in place of every person who would trust in him. And what that means is that no one is completely beyond the reach of God's grace. No human being is beyond hope. And that's why Jesus could say in Matthew 5, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In light of Jesus, this looks a little different. Because we as Christians live at sort of a paradox of hatred and hope. And we should and we do hate sin and injustice. But at the same time, we also hope for the redemption of sinners and ultimately the redemption of the entire cosmos. We live at this intersection of hatred and hope in which we have hatred of sin and hope for the sinner at the same time. Now this is helpful to us at a very practical level. Because this truth sets us free because if you think about the people who have wronged you or degraded you or abused you, here's what this means. You can hate and grieve what they did. You don't have to say, that's okay. You know why? Because it wasn't okay. You don't have to say there are no consequences for the things that you did. Because there are. You can have a hatred for sin, a hatred for what was done, and at the same time, you can live with hope for their redemption at the same time. That is the paradox of hatred and hope in which we live. And it lets us rightly hate evil and yet not hold on to the bitterness and the anger and the lack of forgiveness that we often want to feel towards people. Because you see, when you hate somebody and you refuse to forgive and you never grow into being able to hope for their redemption, it's as if you plunged your hand into a vat of battery acid and threw it at them. You may hurt them some, but you hurt yourself far more than you'll ever hurt them. And this lets us hate and yet hate evil with hope for the sinner. And all of that brings us to a place that opens the door to this dangerous prayer. One of the most dangerous prayers you could ever pray, search me, search me, 
Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me. Know my concerns. See if there's any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. And as you see in this text, there are really four parts to this prayer. Search me, test me, see me, and lead me. The first one of these is search me. Know my heart. The one who knows you best isn't you. No one knows you like God knows you. And he knows all about you. And so to pray, search me, is to say, God, show me the truths about me that I don't see, that I need to see. God, show me the truth about me that I don't see, that I need to see, so that I can value what you value, so I can love what you love. Even if it hurts God, show me. So how does God reveal this truth, this search me truth? Sometimes it's directly. Sometimes by the means of his spirit, God just shows us we realize something about ourselves that we realize is true. And we in that, by means of God's spirit working in us, we simply see something we hadn't seen before. But that's not usually how God does it. Usually God does it through his word and through his people. Through reading his word and through listening to his people. It says in James chapter 1 that the word of God is like a mirror that shows us who we really are. And as we're reading the scriptures, we come to recognize the selfishness, the darkness, and all the things in us that take forms that we never recognized. It's through his word. It's also through his people. Sometimes the people of God, somebody says to you, hey, I've been noticing this in your life. And you hear them and you realize you're right. You're right. That's there and it shouldn't be. Help me. Hold me accountable to this. I just ask you, has there been in the past year or so? Just think back. Have you had any moment in which somebody from among the people of God has come to you and said something to you and you've realized, oh my goodness, there was something in me I didn't know was there that I need to deal with. If not, it's not because you're so righteous. It's because you haven't listened or you're not with people who will truly confront you with what's going on in your life. Because there's none of us that don't need someone to speak into our lives and show us the things that we don't see. Second one, test me. Put me to the test. Know my concerns or anxieties, frustrations, fears. God, test me and show me those. And this truth hurts like no other sometimes. Because ask yourself, what do you fear? What makes you anxious? What is it? And you see, what we fear the most is usually the areas of our life where we trust God the least. Our fears show where we're failing to trust God. What makes you angry? What makes you absolutely just lose it where you're angry? Do you know what anger really comes from? When we just do that, not anger, righteous anger at sin, but when we just become angry over situations and circumstances. We are angry because we are not sovereign. I am not in charge of everything. There was something I couldn't plan for, something I didn't plan for, that I didn't know was going to happen, and I am not sovereign over that, and therefore I will try to reassert my sovereignty, which doesn't exist, 
by becoming angry. That's what it's an attempt to do. Asserting our own sovereignty when we really aren't sovereign by becoming enraged over something that didn't go our way. That's what it is. But remember, God alone is sovereign. And as that great British theologian of the 20th century, Mick Jagger, once said, you can't always get what you want. Why? Because you're not sovereign. You're not sovereign, so you can't always get what you want. That's what anger is, is your frustration that you can't always get what you want. And sometimes it takes time for you to face your fears and your anger. Sometimes it takes some counseling and some help before you get to that point. And here's the beautiful thing. God is at work in that too. God's working in that too. To reveal who we are, to reveal what's going on in our hearts. Test me. Know my concerns, anxieties, my frustrations, my fears. And the third one is see me. See me. See if there's anything offensive in me. And that word offensive can also be translated idolatrous. Is there anything idolatrous in me? God, reveal the idols in my life that I don't want to admit and that I cannot see. And an idol is simply this. It's anything that competes with God for your allegiance. That's what an idol is. Anything that competes with God for your allegiance. Usually, idols are good things, not bad things. They're good things that you love in the wrong way. That's what an idol is. It's a good thing that you're loving in the wrong way. It can be possessions. It can be politics. It can be looking for a particular position or a particular person that you really want. It may be even love for your family can become an idol. It's anything that competes with God for your allegiance. And what we're saying here is, God, reveal my idols so that I can love what you love and leave what you grieve. Because idols do grieve God. Because idols steal away the perfect joy he wants to give us. Idols grieve God. And then he says, lastly, lead me in the everlasting way. Lead me in the way of life. There's something about lead me that's important, and it's this. You don't need to be led if you already know where to go. Simple as that. When we say lead me, what we are admitting is, I don't know the way I should go. I don't know all the places, all the ways, all the things I should do. I need somebody else who knows more than me to lead me. And some of you may be like me, and this one is hard because I know where I want to go. And I have a plan to get there. And I like plans a lot. Plans make me very, very happy. I am very happy when there are plans. I like plans. Plans are wonderful. And the most terrifying words you can speak to me is, let's just wing it and see how things turn out. No, 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 no. We plan and we determine how things are going to come out. That's what we do. To say, lead me, is to say, my plans aren't perfect. <laughs> I don't have perfect plans, and I don't always know. And plans aren't bad, but plans will never get you to the ultimate joy God has for you. It's trusting and saying, God, you lead me. 
because my plans are imperfect. My plans are imperfect. See, only God can make perfect plans because only God has perfect knowledge. And sometimes that means we have to release our plans and follow where God leads. And here's what I'm trying myself in this, is being able to say when things don't go according to my plan, God, what are you teaching me and what do you have in your plans that's better than mine? God, what are you teaching me in this? And show me how your plan has something in it better than mine, because I know it does. I know that it does. Search me, test me, see me, lead me. This is a dangerous prayer that can produce painful consequences for us, but it is truth that will set us free. The question is, what will we do with the truth once God shows it to us? Now, in a sermon series on prayer, there's always a concern that I have. And because of this concern, we're going to do something a little bit different right now. And it's this, that we talk about prayer and we learn about prayer, but then we don't pray. And so I want us to take just a few minutes right now for us actually to pray. Gather with some people around you in just a moment and actually pray together through some of the things that we've talked about. Just do that. Just spend a little time. If you're able to kneel, that's wonderful. If you're not able, that's okay. But spend some time praying and pray out loud. I want us to hear one another and hear the voices of God's people praying dangerous prayers going to the heavens. That's a beautiful thing to hear, of dangerous prayers being lifted up to God. If you're not a believer in Jesus, I'm so glad you're here. And that's okay if you just pray, God, search me if you're there and show me what it is that's keeping me from trusting in you. That's okay to pray that prayer. But I want us to take a few moments just to pray and for us to hear one another pray dangerous prayers before God. Let's pray. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.